Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews. Hello there, I'm Aaron Martell. I'm Mike Cordes. And welcome to Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews, a podcast where we talk about and review a rock album of our choice. On this episode, we have a returning guest co-pilot along with us, the host of the great Potter Than Hell podcast, Mr. Steve Wright. Steve, welcome back to the R4 podcast. Hey, thanks, guys. Uh, glad to be back. Always happy to talk to you guys about and today's album is, oh my God, that's all I got to say. Yeah. So <laughs> So on this episode, we're going to review Whitesnake's 1987 album. So, Steve, tell us your history with Whitesnake in this album. Okay, uh, my history with Whitesnake actually goes back to the uh, Live in the Heart of the City album. I had a job washing dishes at this restaurant, and one of the guys that washed dishes with me, I met him, he was my age, but he went to the Catholic school in our town, and, and I went to the public school, so we didn't really know each other. We got to know each other, and he he actually brought me into like Rainbow and Dio, White Snake, Deep Purple, where, you know, like our guys were Iron Maiden and Kiss and Van Halen and, you know what I mean, and all that. So he brought me into a whole new realm of music. And uh, he's like, here, check this out. And it was the Live in the Heart of the City. And I was like, wow, yeah, these guys are really good. So then when Slide It In came out, picked that up. But then when 87 White Snake came out, um, I, I had my steady girlfriend at the time and I was like, holy shit and this came out uh the year after i graduated from high school so it was it was fucking party time for me then it was <laughs> you know you didn't have to worry about school night i wasn't going to college i was just working a job so i had that that money to, to go out and party and stuff like that and this album was absolutely the soundtrack for for that year rock and mike so this is the album i come into white snake with the i remember hearing in the still of the night and uh, it was really funny. My mom and dad went out uh, to dinner one night and my dad bought me the cassette while they were out, which I always thought was pretty cool. And it was the, it's the only time that he bought me any music that wasn't Christmas or my birthday. So that this album stands alone there. Um, but I mean, all the hits and even 87, I remember being excited because they were opening for Motley on the Girls, Girls, Girls tour. And back then, everything I did centered around Motley Crue. So if they were good enough to open for Motley, I needed to get that album. And uh, that's where I came in and went forward. Yeah, I've got a similar story. For me, White Snake starts with this album, too. I wasn't aware of them prior to this. I didn't even know about Slide It In yet. And it was the video for Still of the Night that drew me in. And that the sound, it fit right in with the hair metal I was into at the time. I was, you know, balls deep in hair metal at the time. And the Bansher shit looked the part, and I thought Tawny Katane was a sexy video vixen, so I was interested in the band, but I didn't buy the album until I saw Whitesnake open for Motley Crue on the Girls, Girls, Girls tour. And that was the first major concert I ever went to with about like 10 or so of my friends from high school, and I thought they were really good live, and that being my first show, it made the biggest impression on me. Like, I just want to go to concerts as much as I possibly can for the rest of my life. So I went right out and got this album on cassette and this, you know, then the record fucking blew up. It broke White Snake huge, especially in the U.S. And then I got slided in not too long after. And years later after that, I discovered that they had an earlier period where they played more bluesy hard rock. I didn't even know they'd been around that long. You know, I, I didn't know the Deep Purple connection or any of that shit. 
But eventually I got around to that era of Whitesnake too, and now I really dig all the eras of the band. But, it, you know, it had been a while, and I kind of forgot about these guys until Steve, you got you guys did a Whitesnake episode on Powder Than Hell. And I was like, oh, shit, we haven't done a Whitesnake album yet, so here we are. Yeah, that was fun. We did like a, not a greatest hits, but like what we would kind of, uh, like if you wanted to introduce Whitesnake to someone, like here's here's a list of songs, we each, we each did it. And actually we are starting, actually we're going to be recording it this week coming up. I'm not sure when this episode comes out, but uh, the first week in se- first full week in September, we're starting a White Snake series where we do the albums. We're doing four albums at a time, and uh, we're we're starting that this week. So uh, you know, look look for that as well. Excellent. I'm looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now I'll pass along some basic facts about this record, and yeah, this comes from Wikipedia. So you know, relax. White Snake is the seventh studio album by British rock band White Snake released on March 31st, 1987 in Europe on the EMI label and April 7th, 1987 in North America on the Geffen label. It was produced by Mike Stone and Keith Olsen and was recorded from 1985 to 1986 at Little Mountain Sound Studios, Vancouver, British Columbia, Phase One Studios, Toronto, Ontario, Compass Point Studios, Bahamas, Cherokee Studios, Los Angeles, California, and one-on-one recording, Los Angeles, California. Woo! It reached number eight on the UK Albums Chart and number two on the US Billboard 200 Chart and is certified platinum by the BPI and eight times platinum by the RIAA. And here's the band's lineup card. We've got David Coverdale on lead vocals, John Sykes on guitars and backing vocals, Neil Murray on bass, and Ainsley Dunbar on drums and percussion. There are additional musicians, which we'll mention as we see fit. And also, we're going to be reviewing the North American version of the album because it's the version we own and know. No other reason. Sorry, Europeans. All right, here we go into a track-by-track analysis of this album. Leading off is Crying in the Rain, written by David Coverdale. The sun is shining. Steve, what do you think? This song, what a way to open up the album. Ba ba ba, well, black cat moans when he's burning with the fever. And I sing fucking terrible. <laughs> um, goes right into it. I love the build on this song. Right after that, those first lines, and then the band comes in, you get that. And you're going to hear this a lot. You're going to hear, like, right when it, they kick into that main riff there, and you got that that pinch harmonic, that wah, wah, as, they, as, it, as it goes along. It just, like, the first time hearing this just blew me away. Um, and it's got a lot of little tasty leads thrown in here and there between the verses are cool. The bass and drums just chug along. Excellent drum fills, like, throughout. And, and it's... You know, you didn't really get into music like you like you are now. So when I saw this live, this was an album that I really paid attention to the to the liner notes because I only had the cassette. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, like Tommy Aldridge and Rudy Sarazzo, like the the guys you've seen live. I mean, I knew John Sykes played on it, but when these guys played this live, they translated it absolutely perfect. Solo, holy shit, <laughs> absolutely fucking ripping. 
the second part of the solo where where it picks up and you get that double bass. And I got to say this for my co-host BB, this is just fucking sick bananas. This solo. Um, we saw White Snake uh, years ago with uh, Doug Alderich was in the band, him and Red Beach. And um, when they did this, they closed out the set with it. And oh my god, he just absolutely tore it up. It was like it was plucked from the album, but extended. And we were just like high fiving and like holy shit! Like afterwards, like the just amazing, amazing solo in it. God damn, what a lead back into the pre-chorus and uh, David Coverdale scream. And it's and the sun is shining and it's raining in my heart. I'm like, holy shit. Like and if you were familiar with slide it in up to this, you didn't really get that those screams from David Coverdale on the the previous albums. He he would go high sometimes, but this was like, whoa, holy crap. Just like amazing start to it. I'm exhausted already. Just listen to this first (laughs) song. Like, holy shit. Just fucking amazing. Rock and Mike. So, I mean, that's the first thing that hit me when I heard it was his vocals, you know, still the night being the first song you hear. And then you get the cassette and you pop it in and then this happens and you're like, what? Who is this guy? Because, like I said, not knowing his backstory, you know, I'm 13. I'm thinking this is like some young kid, like new band out the gate. You're like, wow, this dude rips. And at that point, it was probably the heaviest thing I was listening to. Because I was a few months before I had discovered Metallica, and then the and it's just I mean the it's got a dirty riff, which I, not a lot of stuff at that time that I was listening to was there something that sounded that dirty in the riff. Now that I'm older and listening back to it in the past week, I still love this song. I absolutely do. I do lean a little bit more towards the Saints and Sinners version a little bit now. Um, and that's only because it has John Lord and Ian Pace on it. And I'm a huge Deep Purple fan. So I, I, I love that there. The only thing for me, and like I said, this is more of listening to it now than then, because I was 100% on board with this song. I kind of, the melody line fits with the Saints and Sinners version a little bit better. But that's really my only knock on the song. Other than that, what a way to start an album. You know, um, there, I mean, the last minute and a half, it does sound like a two-year-old tripped over a drum set for a little bit because it's just kind of a bang, 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 bang. But I love that too. So uh, I'm all on board. Yeah. Uh, disclaimer, I am going to be repeating what everybody else says. I do it every episode, but you know, that's, that's par for the course by now. Any, any longtime listener to the podcast knows this. So anyway, we don't waste any time, right? Boom. It just hits you with that call and response between the music, bomb, 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 and David Coverdale's voice. And I've always liked prime period Coverdale. His voice in his low register can do this like gritty, seductive growl. And in his high register, he can hit some shrieky emotional spikes. He doesn't have the highest of the highs or the lowest of the lows, but he covers a huge area in the middle that's very appealing. Now, this song, we were saying it's a re-recorded version of an older White Snake tune from just five years earlier on the Saints and Sinners album. And that version is a bit slower and has much more of a blues influence because that's how the band sounded with the players that were in it. Uh, Mickey Moody and Bernie Marsden. And I do like that version. But here it's completely revamped as a hair metal scorcher due to the presence of guitarist John Sykes. who played with Thin Lizzy and the new wave of British heavy metal band Tigers of Pantang. So the sound has all the hair metal hallmarks. It's got huge, bombastic drums, stacked guitars, big gang-style vocals on the chorus, and everything is doused in so much reverb, it echoes like the Grand Fucking Canyon. 
Ainsley Dunbar on drums was a veteran of the scene. This dude played with freaking everybody from Frank Zappa to Jeff Beck and all points in between. And on this, he's just bashing all over his kit, pounding out some fearsome fills. And yet he still maintains the blues shuffle beat underneath the bombast. That bassist Neil Murray, he was the lone holdout from the old band. Actually, he'd left and, and come back to Whitesnake. He plays along to... The guitar solo, like you said, Steve, holy fucking shitballs, Batman. The best way I can describe it is it sounds like Sykes is masturbating his guitar as fast as he can with both hands. It is absolutely shred-a-bonanzical fantastica. It just leaves you breathless. You're given no room to come up for air, regardless of whether you're a fan of this style of playing or not. It just leaves the flesh of your face melted off the bone. And as if the music wasn't dense enough, there's atmospheric keyboards over the top of this thing, played by Don Airy and Bill Cuomo. And Mr. Coverdale isn't going to be ignored. He yelps, howls, and screams the vocals about a guy who's constantly mistreated by his woman, but he can't help himself. He keeps coming back for more, though he knows she's going to burn him again, and he covers his tears by crying in the rain that's in his heart. This track was totally in my wheelhouse at the time it came out. I mean, I was a hair metal nut job, so yeah, I dig this. Let's go. Hey, quick question. How do you spell that hair metal what the palooza? Oh, shred a bonanza go fantastica. <laughs> you need to you need That's to copyright one. that. <laughs> I just made that up. Super California. <laughs> I, I was just thinking that when you when you were saying that. <laughs> the next track is Bad Boys, written by David Coverdale and John Sykes. Mike, your thoughts. All right, here we go. It has everything that Lou hates about 80s metal, <laughs> but I dig it. <laughs> I dig it a lot. It, uh, oh, it's Lou, cool riff. Lou. Oh, I know. <laughs> cool riff, but it, it admittedly, it could be a little bit dirtier like the first one, but it's 1987, so I'm going to throw it a bone. I don't care. I guess this is kind of what happens when you Americanize uh, that English electric blues. The solo, I like this solo too because it's built cool. It comes in with a different tone, and it sounds weird, but it kind of builds downward. Like the, it, it takes a song, it takes a song almost into a hole, and then the solo changes tone, and then it comes right back up to the top of the song. And like every thing from this era, they're going to beat you up with the first verse and the chorus. I don't care. I really don't care. My only knock on the song is that they chose to end it with a fade. Not a fan of the ending. But other than that, everything about this song is, as Mr. Zimmer would say, is the tits. <laughs> Steve. All right. Well, I got to say, Aaron, if Mike's comment about Lou is correct, him and I may be fighting like you and Sonny yeah. on our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so it, 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 it may be a double feature. It could so be a double feature. Yeah. You, you we'll have tag team. <laughs> yeah. Because... This is my absolute favorite fucking White Snake song. I love it. Fast, heavy riff. You get the ow, 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 ow. I, I love the little things like that that are throughout this album. The double bass starts, straight up hard rocker of a song. 
I love bad, bad boys. And I absolutely love it when he does it live and he goes, and some bad girls. <laughs> I just, every time I hear that, even studio version, I, I think of that. The solo is your super califragilistic solo that you said before. <laughs> um, yeah, just uh, amazing. But my, my thing is, and I say it a lot when, uh, when we do albums on our podcast, listen to the band and the, the playing underneath the solos. The band yes. is just a, a chugging, chugging machine. Then you get a little short guitar mini part. Uh, you guys coined that word too, didn't you? Guitar mini, I think. I think you guys are the first ones I've ever heard say that. <laughs> um, right after the solo, you get that guitar mini start, um, part after the solo. The double bass fills between the verses and the chorus. The band is just rocking as it fades out. And and I, I, I do agree with you there, Mike, that... The fade out is kind of like, oh, like, dudes, like, just like hard stop would be fantastic here. But yep. for me, besides that, it's a perfect song. I absolutely love this one. Uh-huh. That's a John Sykes slide. He does it all over this album. <laughs> and this one starts with a nice John Sykes chugging riff, and it jumps into an up-tempo rocker that never takes its foot off the gas. Sykes guitar, man, he's on fire. His solo opens up with blazing shredding and then transitions to that sweet guitar-manized passage that wouldn't sound out of place in his Thin Lizzy days. He also plays that harmonized part during the choruses that finish with long, sustained notes that melt right back into the verse riffing. It's really cool. Dunbar gets in some nice, ferocious-sounding fills, and Murray holds everything together on bass so the track doesn't fly apart. Coverdale sings in a rough-and-ready voice in the verses, and he opens up a bit in the pre-choruses and choruses. And the lyrics aren't deep. David's a bad boy, the black sheep of the family, in and out of trouble, running around town at night with his posse of bad boys, getting wild in the street. But who needs lyrical depth when the chorus is this catchy? I dig it. The first time I ever saw Whitesnake, they opened their set with this song on tour for this record, and it just became a staple of their sets. The following track is Still of the Night, written by David Coverdale and John Sykes. Steve, you like this one? I absolutely love this one. Once again, <laughs> bah, 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 you know, um, I love it. Then you get the, the the solo vocals until the main riff comes in. Heavy, heavy, heavy. Great pre-chorus. I get a I get a really sleazy vibe from this song. Not like a not like a faster pussycat kind of sleaze. Like a like a like a like a David Coverdale highbrow kind of sleaze, you know yeah. what I mean? Like uh, you know the the charming gentleman that he is, but I still get that that sleaze um, feel from this song here. His scream, like when you get that before it goes into that mellower part in the middle, there is like way up there, um, and you get that ooh baby that part in the middle that has just the the echoes in it and all that stuff. I can't keep away, but the vocals build through that part. The keyboard part, that I absolutely love that part because it has just such a, a fantastic build to the and, and the guitar solo is short. So I think they kind of use this whole middle part as like the, the solo in the song. 
but like the little guitar solo that you do get is there is is really great kick ass greatly produced song um very well crafted song but i like the end you get the still of the night still of the night still of the night and then it goes a little more then you get that three times and three times and three times and another fade out song too which i'm kind of like ah oh, dude it's just like boom like do a slam ending but another one for me that is just fantastic this album is like you know you're just pummeled right off the bat rock and mike i love the unholy shit out of this song <laughs> the um this is my favorite song on a whole album it's what made me want the album it's got a great riff i love that slow breakdown i had read it was an actual cello that and i i love that and it's got like a chord solo that they do back into like a restrained lead back into the riff that whole section coverdale's vocals are on top which makes this what makes this song aces because you're listening to the music and you still can't believe there's someone on the planet that can sing like that now this is we we talked about this on the winger episode a little bit and i think this is where sometimes what they did for videos kind of hurt the actual meat and potatoes of the song, because I don't understand like the part where Adrian Vandenberg in the, in the video, he picks up the bow and during that whole thing, he's on, how did you not think people were going to start trying to compare you to Zeppelin when you did that? You know, I, I I just wish they were a little more conscious of that. You know, I mean, you're, you're David Coverdale. You, you were in deep purple, right. And who, in my opinion, and the prof is going to kill me. I, I like deep purple better than Zeppelin. So Me too. I, I'm a huge, 100%. I'm a huge deep purple guy. Oh, so go like, fuck you, yourselves. <laughs> oh, stop. Stop. oh come on. Nice your guests. <laughs> I, I don't like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The singer, you know, book of a lesion when they had the first guy, I don't even know his name. That's a great, I'll, anyhow, we could go down a purple episode some other time, but you didn't need to do that. So I think the video kind of hurt that a little bit, but this song is so freaking cool. And I dare anybody who was listening to music at this time, if this song doesn't make you move or turn your head and want to know what the hell is making that noise when he, when he's singing, I don't know what will move you like that. And, um, Steve highbrow sleaze is the perfect way to say that because yeah, get ready is. for this week. I was listening. I was watching a bunch of stuff on YouTube. I'm watching interviews and watching performances. And then I fell back down a purple hole and I'm listening to, you know, burn and all that. And, uh, when he talks, you just watch him talk. And in your head, you're going, this guy is way smarter than me. Um, just, <laughs> just the way he presents himself. But this, oh God, this is, this song is awesome. I love this. All right. So I guess we're gonna have to fight over deep purple and Zeppelin. I love deep purple too, but no, 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 not better than Zeppelin. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> So I'm going to do it too. In the still of the night. Wrong song. Wrong song. According to Coverdale, this began as a demo he was working on with his old Deep Purple bandmate, Richie Blackmore, and then it was abandoned and forgotten. Coverdale had the tape at his mother's house, and after she passed, he stumbled across it as he was going through his stuff there, and he thought enough of it to give it to Sykes to help flesh it out. And yeah, this does have a Zeppelin vibe. They they took a lot of shit for it, actually. It's kind of like a mishmash between Black Dog, In My Time of Dying, and Whole Lot of Love. The verse sections have that black dog feel with the call and response between Coverdale's Robert Plant-esque vocals and Sykes' awesome riff. 
And then it's followed by the chorus section, which introduces a new groove that changes to a basic rhythm and brings in that sleazy new riff. Love that shit. And then, of course, there's the spacey middle section ripped straight from Whole Lot of Love with Coverdale moaning and wailing and the keyboards providing sort of a hushed, floating atmosphere like Whole Lot of Love does. The tune is pulled back in with a sampled keyboard section that sounds like strings. So you're kind of both right. It actually is a cello, but it was sampled and then played through a keyboard. So you're both kind of right about that. Oh, okay. And then it, right. Yeah, and then it takes you to a short guitar solo with Sykes blending fast note shredding and long sustained notes. And then we get one more short verse and chorus and finally a long outro that sees Dunbar wailing on his kit and Coverdale shouting, still the night, still the night, still the night. It's great. The lyrics are about Coverdale's out-of-control libido, and there's a gothic, almost vampiric quality to them that, you know, it doesn't intrude on, like, Peter Steele territory. But, hey, it still (laughs) works. Our David's always the horny lad. And it's quite a journey we've been taking on. It's the longest track on the album. It's got an epic feel. This is Whitesnake's Dare I Say It? Stairway to Heaven. Yeah, I guess. I I know it's a terrible comparison, but you know know what I'm saying. It's their big epic track that everybody knows. And then, of course, there was a music video with Coverdale smoldering and all his hair metal glory and Miss Tawny Katane vamping it up. And this is the track that turned me on to the band. And I mean, look, they caught a lot of shit for the Zeppelin comparisons. Robert Plant even once called Coverdale David Cover version. But uh, any member of Led Zeppelin getting his knickers in a twist about musical theft has no leg to stand on considering how much Zeppelin stole from uncredited sources. So fuck off, Robert. Here, here. I love this track, always have, and it was the first single from the album that reached number 16 on the UK singles chart and number 79 on the US Billboard Hot 100 chart. Get over here, baby! (laughs) The next track is Here I Go Again, written by David Coverdale and Bernie Marsden. How about this one, Rockin' Mike? So we got the second single, and of the three studio versions of this track that I know of anyway, um, this is my favorite version, is the album version on here. I like this version best because of one part. Um, At the end of where he says, here I go again on my own, there's that dun-dun. It's like a heavier punch that the other versions don't have. And it's such a simple little thing, and I don't know why I like that part so much, but that's what kind of puts it over the top for me. Um, Coverdale obviously knew that this song was going to be his meal ticket because he beat this horse until it crossed the (laughs) finish line. Um, You know, this number one single, which amazes me that I guess it does and it doesn't. I I think I just forgot that it was a number one single because it was absolutely everywhere. Um, This is the one, the, what the one song on the album, the feature Vandenberg on the solo. Yes. So we do have a little bit of, you know, the, 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 the coming version of the band. What's weird for me is that while this album was out, he recorded yet another version of this track and there's a radio mix version with almost a completely different band. And it's that radio version that hit number one. It's not the album version, which is, it, it's just trippy to me how many times he did that 
with with different songs and redoing them. And he'd do it again on the next album, Fool for Your Lovin' was yet another throwback. But the the guitar player on the radio mix version was this guy, Dan Huff. Dan Huff played with Shaka Khan and Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers. And like, and here he is playing on White Snake and he played on a number one song. <laughs> uh, it also had Mark Andes on bass from Canned Heat and Heart. And uh, Denny Carmasi from Nugent's band and Hagar's band and more, more famously Hard as well. So yeah. it was just weird. I like the song. It does suffer a little bit of ear burn for me at this time. When it comes on, it doesn't quite hit me when the, when the album came out. But it's a you know pop rock classic, really. I mean, it, 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 it's what pushed this album into that stratosphere. Yeah, it did. Steve? All right. Um, fatigue factor out of the way. Listen to this album the first time, like, holy shit, this song comes at a great time. You kind of mm-hmm. need a break from, like, jamming the fuck out on the first three tracks. Great, you know, if you want to call it a power ballad. And, oh, oh, Tony Katane, rest <laughs> in peace. Like, yes. doing them splits on the cars and shit, just, you know, rest in peace. Um, great heartfelt uh, softer vocals for for David Lee. Uh, yeah, I was going to say David Lee Roth, yeah. <laughs> David Coverdale out here. You don't, you don't get that from David Lee Roth. That's for goddamn sure. Um, <laughs> but I, I like the I like the the softer vocals because you're you're so used to the the heavier stuff and the 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 higher pitch stuff for the first three songs. You kind of get that that little uh, softer version on this song. And I like the I really like the second verse on this song because you get the 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 band playing more under the the vocals on when he kicks into the second verse. It's got a great sing-along chorus. Um, you know, I made up my mind. I ain't wasted no more time, but here I go again. And he goes, Gah! And then you're like, ooh, there's those vocals back again. Great scream. Very melodic solo. Uh, I, I like John Sykes in this because he plays very tastefully. I think th- this solo absolutely serves the song. It's not, you know, like Sick Bananas. It's not crazy Ingve shit. It's just a great melodic hard rock solo totally fits the song. Like I said, take the fatigue factor away of hearing it a million times. It, it's a really good song. And also I agree with Mike. This is in my opinion, the best version of this song, the one remix one, it's so keyboard heavy. Yes. Like, yes. Oh my God. It, it's, I, I hate it. It's almost like two different songs for me. I, if I hear that version, come on, I instantly skip it. But if I hear the album version, I'm, I'm all in for it. So I read that Coverdale only wanted to re-record Crying in the Rain, but as part of the negotiations with the record label, the label chiefs, David Geffen and Al Corey, advised him to do this song over too. And it was also originally on the Saints and Sinners album. And their A&R man, John Kalodner, thought it had potential. The original track has a more stark production and a gospel-tinged sound in the keyboards, especially in the intro, where here it's a foundation of thick, billowy synths that lets Coverdale set the tone with his sensitive vocals. But it's the big, bombastic hair metal chorus that pulls you in. Sykes' guitar and Dunbar's drums just slam in, and the song goes from a dreamy ballad to a mid-tempo thud rocker that's as catchy as meningitis. Apparently, Sykes refused to play the solo because he detested blues music and didn't want to play a bluesy solo. So Coverdale enlisted the Flying Dutchman, Adrian Vandenberg, to cut the solo, and he does a fine job. Vandenberg would eventually end up in the band before too long. And that's why it, we don't get the sick banana stuff, Steve, because it's Vandenberg. I, I, I stand corrected. You know yep, what? I, yep. I, I did read that, but 
and and it and it does it it totally fits the song. Yeah, and you can tell it's not Sykes. Yo, Adrian. <laughs> so <laughs> the lyrics are about a lonely guy who's on the move, looking for love, and going down the only road he's ever known. He's damaged but hopeful, and for now, he's destined to walk alone. For some reason, Geffen asked the band to re-record it again as a radio mix. Rock and Mike went over who played on all that. And then you combine that with the video that, like Steve mentioned, saw Miss Katane cartwheeling on the hoods of a couple of Jaguar cars. This song in the video blew up, and you could not escape it for a little while there. So yeah, for me, there's also a bit of ear burn, but I've always liked the track. It's a good song. Mm-hmm. And the radio mix was a massive hit. Ask a casual person to name a White Snake tune, and odds are it's going to be this one. It reached number nine on the UK singles chart and number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. And this version is definitely the best of the three, for sure. Yep. Absolutely. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on Give Me All Your Love, written by David Coverdale and John Sykes. I don't even know your name. I can't leave you alone. I'm running around in circles like a dog without a bone. I know they can be playing, but baby, I just can't let go. Steve, let's have it. Bob out. Bob out. Great start to the second side. I, lo- I love that, uh, like, bombastic start to it. And I love how the snare drum roll that he does when it when it totally kicks in. Fantastic rocking song. Uh, this is still another one that they, they, they do live all the time. Fan favorite. I go nuts when they play this live. David's vocals are absolutely fantastic. I love the feel of the song. This is a open your windows in your car and just get on the road and just blast this song. I, I just, I think it's fantastic. Another ripping solo. And, and I like how some of these songs, even though you're really just John Sykes playing a guitar in this predominantly on this album, a lot of these songs lend themselves to a great live feel where you can have two different lead guitar players and there's good places in these songs to split between two different guys and this is definitely one of those one of those parts. That tempo change for the second part of the solo, you could definitely see where another guitar player could just rip that up and, and split the solos between the two guys. And once again, underneath the, the soloing, the band is absolutely killing it. Um, song kicks down for just bass and drums for the chorus. Perfect time for the crowd to sing along to live. And um, I love right before it kicks back in, David does that, oh, like a real high oh. And er- that gets me every time. I'm like, yes, like, like I just, I love that part of the song. Uh, just another amazing track. Uh, great side two opener. So, Steve, you've seen the modern version of this band, right? Yeah, I've, I've seen. Actually, I saw the first time I saw them when you guys did. They opened up for Crew on the Girls, Girls, Girls tour. Yeah, and I've seen many versions uh, up, up to and including the current version of, of White Snake. The reason why I bring that up is I'm curious. Did did the guitar players split the solo on this? Like you mentioned that they could do? I believe they did. If yeah. if you listen to uh, there's that uh, live album out that they did, uh, Donington, it was the one that was on the radio where they, they the BBC tells me I have to stop swearing. <laughs> you, you could definitely tell 
it's Adrian Vandenberg and Steve Vai on that. And you could, they switch and so songs like this, they switch back. They do, you know, half a solo and the guy, other guy does the other half. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that this is one of them that they do split it because it, it lends itself perfectly to that. Yeah. All right, Mike. So I, I would love to have seen the version with Doug Aldrich mm. because I'm, I'm a huge Doug Aldrich guy. Oh, they were um, fantastic. He's 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 a monster player. He was actually he was very nice to my daughter. I met him and he was he was aces. He he could not have been a kinder person uh, to my 13 year old daughter at the time. So I yeah, just nice guy in there because I've met him super a couple nice times. guy. Real cool. Um, so but now so this is the fourth single uh, came out was February 88. So the bluesy aspects really of older white snake and even the earlier part of this album are completely gone on here. It's just a simple glam metal single built for the arena. Like Steve was talking about where that breakdown, give me all your love. And you could just pick get the crowd chanting, you know, and they play that part in the video as well. I love it. Um, I, I think, I think it's great. There are punctuations of keys throughout that right along with the guitar melody that I like. Now for me, I like the 88 mix, which is the version for the video. I like that the best because I'm a big Vivian Campbell fan as well. And that 88 mix in the video is actually Vivian Campbell. Uh, he re he recorded a solo and then they, they worked it in for the single version. So if you grab the single, I think you, that's the only recorded uh, material that Vivian did for the band. That's his yes, it is. videos. Yep. So I, 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 I'm partial to that version, but in the, you know, in a true eighties fashion, they bash you with the chorus and I don't give a shit. I sing right along and I love every minute of it. So this rides an up-tempo shuffle groove and the synths sync up with the guitar riffs as well as providing the customary background atmosphere while Dunbar really pounds those skins, man. Sykes opens up his solo with some crying screeches and adds in his fast note flurries as it progresses. It's got a little bit of a different flavor than we've heard so far, and it's pretty sweet. Coverdale's singing about his obsession with a woman. He doesn't know her name, but he knows she's trouble. But that doesn't matter. He'll do anything she wants if she'll be his tonight. He'll prove his love for her. This track is decent. I find myself singing along with the chorus, too. It doesn't knock my socks off, but I like it. And it was the fourth and final single that reached number 18 on the UK singles chart and number 48 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. The following track is Is This Love, written by David Coverdale and John Sykes. How about this one, Mike? I really like this one too. Um, and one of the things, so we're going to get into the sequencing nerd or the sequ what, uh, what did Dave call me? Uh, the sequencing freak. Yes. Um, because the whole middle, the four singles are right in a row. It's like, bam, 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 bam. You've got the strong beginning. They hit you with four singles and we'll get to the rest in a little bit. The vocals are awesome. You know, they, the vocals set that melody over the framework of the rest of the song. Now, for me, what's interesting is there's three notes that the key the keyboard plays after Coverdale sings. Is this love? They're like din din din. Now, it remind me heavily of Love Bites 
by Def Leppard. Because what if you listen to Love Bites by Def Leppard, underneath the verses as he's singing, the whole song is din 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 din. Hmm. That's all those two, those two, and I'm not saying anybody ripped anybody off. I just found it weird how similar those two aspects were. I think what I like the most about this are the guitars in this song because there's a slink for lack of a better word. I don't know if it's a, there's a slinkiness to it. If that's right. It's like a, almost like a smoky feel to the, to the song. And I like the way they carry that into the solo because the solo, it just cries along and that guitar tone, the smokiness of it, it, it kind of carries. So I really like that as well. And as far as ballads go, I know every, you know, we always joke around about the eighties ballads and stuff, but I really like this one a lot. And I know it was written for another artist that I think, Aaron will mention. You can. It's fine by me. Oh, yeah. It was originally written for Tina Turner, and then yep. David Geffen heard it and said, no, you need to keep this. Yep. Good call. Yes. Steve. All right. This is one of my only problems with this album is, and Mike, you said about sequencing, I, I think if they switch this in the next song, I think it would have flowed better on the album, but I know you don't want the the, another single like really deep in the album but like you know you have the first three songs to kick your ass and you have here i go again brings it down then you get back up with give me all your love and then you go right back down again with is this love so you you had children of the night next and then bring it down again in between the last two songs i think it would it would flow better for me anyways you know because you just get right back up and then you're like oh back down again now, like a, it's kind of a, a, a momentum killer for me but I do like the 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 very the soft vocals, uh, very singable chorus, cool melodic guitar between the between the verses. Well written song. It's uh, you know it's one of them. It does you know you, you have that fatigue factor with it because this song was everywhere, played all the time. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it's a great ballad. And, and you guys, what I want you to do right now is while you're thinking about this song, get your cigarette lighters out, get them up in the air because <laughs> that's what's happening at the show. Yeah. Um, and and this is another one, the solo is totally fitting for the song. And gentlemen, this song will get you laid. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I'm trying that tonight. I got to talk to the wife. (laughs) I'm working on it myself. (laughs) (laughs) So we got us a power ballad, folks. A synth wash gives way to clean guitar arpeggios, a slowly percolating bass line, and laid-back drumming. And Coverdale is in full seductive mode. His voice drips with desire. He's still obsessed with the woman. He can't sleep. He spends his time waiting for her to call. Then in the chorus, he pours his heart out. His voice rises. He can't stop what he's feeling. Is he dreaming or is this love? Now, what sets this apart from other run-of-the-mill ballads of the time is Sykes' guitar for me. It's really a second voice echoing Coverdale's sentiments. It sounds like the guitar is crying and pleading, and the solo lays off the shredding pyrotechnics and delivers an emotional punch. It's very well done. John Sykes is the true star of this record for me, actually. The tune's designed to set young female hearts aflutter, like Steve said, (laughs) it'll get you laid, and it worked in spades. Yet another big hit boosted by yet another popular video featuring Tawny Katane, and it was the third single that reached number nine on the UK singles chart and number two on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. They had a number one and number two single off this album. Holy shit. Is that crazy? The next track is Children of the Night, written by David Coverdale and John Sykes. Don't hide what you feel inside, don't let anybody stand in your way. Just let the music take you higher. 
Steve, how about this? Okay, now I don't know if there's a technical term for this, but <laughs> <laughs> right into the riff. No fucking around on this one. Hard rocker. Uh, I love the chugging bass. The are you ready to rock, children of the? I just it's one of them songs that instantly gets you. Fun song. Gets the fists in the air. Uh, uh, kick ass ramp up for the the solos are shredding. This is another example of how you could split these solos into. This song just kicks all kinds of ass. Um, like I said, I wish it was flipped with Is This Love, but um, still fantastic. You're getting that momentum back again. Rockin' Mike. This is my second favorite track on the record. Just the same thing. Are you ready to rock? It's just like, you know, especially when you're 13 and you're discovering the music, you're like, yes, Mr. Coverdale, I fucking am. You know, they're like, <laughs> just, you just, you're, I'm all in on this song right here. Great riff. Hooky, very hooky pre-chorus on this too. I like, it's got that whammy infused solo, not a hint of that White Snake Blues. And if I had to guess who, I'm, I'm completely guessing here, but I can picture this being brought in by Sykes and that hooky pre-chorus and kind of the almost, for lack of a better phrase, the pop sensibility that's worked into that chorus was Coverdale. It's almost like you can dissect that part. As I said earlier, I was only a few months away from discovering Metallica, and this was like the heaviest thing. I remember just it blew my freaking mind, and I, I absolutely love this track. I was going to imitate the slide noise, but it seems like Steve wants to steal my thunder the whole fucking <laughs> episode. So, but no, no, I, I'm kidding, sorry. dude. I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding, man. Slide away. Here we have an 80s hair metal riff rocker checking off all the boxes. Palm muted chugging riff. Unflashy but propulsive bass. Drums holding that fast steady beat with occasional fills. A bumblebee note shredding guitar solo. And heroic vocals from a singer asking his audience, are you ready to rock and are you ready to roll? You've got the power. Let yourself go. Let no one stand in your way. Let the music take you higher. And yes, I love seeing the chorus, Children of the Night. I dig that. But for me, you guys like this one a lot more than I do. It, it, to me, it's nothing to really distinguish this from anything else going on at the time. Tunes like this were a dime a dozen. It's, well, okay, Sykes guitar lifts the music. So it does lift this above your, your standard hair metal track. But it feels like they're starting to go through the motions a little bit with this one for me. The penultimate track is Straight for the Heart. Written by David Coverdale and John Sykes. Rock and Mike, let's have it. Nope. <laughs> no. No. Let's not have it. Like, the album just like right here, it fell off a freaking cliff for me. Um, so I put this as like pop rock two-step dad music. <laughs> like, you know, I don't like the keyboards in this. The double-tracked vocals make this sound way too happy going straight for the heart da, 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 da. like and you have to like swing your hips when you sing it because it just uh, no way the solo doesn't fit the song for me the guitar mini doesn't help i heard a interview with coverdale i think it was from 2017 and as of 2017 they've never played this song live 
which I was like, I get it. I completely get it. There was, I completely understand that decision. Um, this is Mike's unimpressed fluffy fuckery. Steve. Okay. Um, Aaron, I'm going to let you do it. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) All right. There you go. Uh, But then it goes right into this ice capades, like keyboard thing (laughs) at the beginning there. (laughs) Until the guitar kicks in, you know, Um, and and it, I I don't hate this song. It's kind of a a little hidden gem for me. I, I don't love it, but I don't hate it. But it's weird. You're on track eight and you're like, this is a deep track on the album. It's and you're in like song eight, like everything else you've heard a million times, whether you've you know seen them live or listened to their live albums and stuff like that. I, I, I don't mind this one. It's up tempo. It is a little a little too happy crappy for me as well. It would be kind of cool to see them bust this out live. Uh, the, I like the chorus. The song doesn't waste much time. It, it, it's a quick one. It gets you in and out quickly. The solo is fantastic in this song. And it, it it really saves it for me. You're kind of like, uh, okay, you know, we're and and you're right, Aaron. You're kind of getting at this album, but this is a, a a fatiguing album because the first seven songs you're just like overwhelmed by how, how good they are. And I think once you get to this point, you're kind of like, I'm rocked the fuck out. I I just <laughs> need this to, to kind of be over with. I think, but uh, I I don't mind it. I I don't. I don't hate it and I, I don't love it, but it's it's kind of a little little hidden gem for me. Oh man, I'm rocked the fuck out. Okay. Take what I said about the last track and add some annoying keyboards that fight to grab your attention along with the guitar, and then you have this utterly generic pop metal dud. Even Coverdale barely hides his boredom. He actually sings the words stand and deliver in the name of love. And check out this chorus. I'm going straight for the heart. Gonna drive you crazy. Going straight for the heart. Gonna drive you insane. It's a bit redundant, no? The only redeeming quality for me is the guitarmony run that ends Sykes' solo, but it's not enough, lads. This is clearly Aaron's stinky stinker. And that brings us to the final track, Don't Turn Away, written by David Coverdale and John Sykes. So what's a man like me supposed to do? Steve, how about this last one? All right. Congratulations on the intro to this one. Um, good job. <laughs> um, don't turn away. Last song on here. Um, another Ice Capades keyboard intro. Two in a row. I, I usually like my Ice Capades at the Ice Capades. <laughs> and um, I fucking hate the verses on this song. I don't know why. It's just like does not resonate with me. This is the dud for me on here. The chorus. I, I, I do like the chorus. The solo is like a melodic solo. <laughs> the the band underneath is really good on this one. It kicks up at the end for for a fade out, and this one is Steve's shitty song selection. Ooh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's it's like a snake.
I love it. <laughs> Brock and Mike. Uh, I, the first word I wrote was "ug." Um, yeah. It starts with the keys. This is Muff Part 2 for the same reasons. Uh, it's better than Straight for the Heart for me because it doesn't sound happy. So it's got that going for it. But the song is eh. It's got a decent solo. I mean, it's John Sykes. So does he ever turn in a bad solo? Uh, the album comes in like a beast and then it vomits on its own shoes. Uh, <laughs> like the you know, chorus, they beat you with it. And yeah, all right. Went out with a whimper. So we finish up with a mid-tempo, half-ballad, half-rocker that's got the typical quiet verses and bombastic pre-choruses taking us to heavier choruses that have me thinking, here we go again. The synths have a huge presence again and cast that wide background net over everything while also doubling the guitar licks, and I just find myself yawning and wanting the record to be over. Now, luckily, Sykes turns in another choice solo. He builds it up melodically, shreds a little bit in the middle, and returns to more melodic phrasing to close it out. I knew he wouldn't let me down. So this time, Coverdale's after a different kind of woman. She's sad and fearful, damaged goods, hiding her love away. But so? What the hell's Coverdale supposed to do? He wants to fuck. So she best not turn away because he's coming for her. Mr. Sensitive has had enough. It's time for her to put out. And just when I thought we were wrapping things up, we go into an outro section that reminds me a little bit of the still of the night outro and it lingers a bit before finally fading out and I'm ready to fade out after slogging through all the mediocre tracks on side two. Now that the track by track is done, we'll give our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a zero to five system with five being a favorite album of ours all the way down to a zero, which got caught in the middle of the David Coverdale, John Sykes feud. Steve, what are your final thoughts on White Snake 87? My final thoughts are uh, fantastic. I, I love the album. Um, I, I can even tolerate the last two songs if I have to, but usually this is like a seven song album for me. Sometimes six if I skip Is This Love. You know, I, I definitely have to be in the mood for love for that one. But <laughs> after hearing and being familiar with the older, bluesier version of White Snake, and there, there's a couple glimpses of, of things to come on some of the solos on Slide It In, but like after hearing all that other stuff and then Slide It In, and this album was like a kick right in the nuts in a good way. It was like, holy fuck, like these guys just rock. Uh, we talked about seeing them live for this tour, and you know, and they only got better. They, they really did. The songs on here that are great are really great. And the ones that are like meh are eh, meh, but you don't get to that until the end. And honestly, I have not listened to the last two songs in this album in years until I was prepping for this again. Like the, I know the other songs that the first half of the album, you know, like the back of my hand are no problem. But like these other two songs, I was like, Ooh, that's, I, I kind of see why I don't really, you know, check these ones out, but, um, fantastic. Rock and Mike. You pretty much just copy what Steve said. It was when I got to those last two songs, I I didn't even remember what they were. I was like, where? where how do I not remember those two when I remember the rest of the album so well? And I think that's that's basically this album in a nutshell. I give it a three and a half. I would completely revisit this record in the future, minus the last two. I fell down a white snake rabbit hole interviews and live footage and um, forgot how good of a band. Coverdale can put together because has he really ever put together a shitty version of this band? I mean, it's a revolving door, but they never 
he, he doesn't have any slouches. He never brings any slouches into the camp. Um, so kudos to him for that. And, uh, my deep purple affection, you know, so I, I always go back to that as well. So, um, yeah, I, three and a half and, uh, I, I will gladly return to this album from time to time. I forgot to rank it. Yeah, go for it. Uh, I'm going to give it, a, I'm going to give it like a four, uh, just for those, those two songs at the end. And, and Mike, you're absolutely right with, uh, David Coverdale, always surrounded by talent and just he's like Ozzy in that realm. Um, mm-hmm. Just there's always talented players in the band. And you're right. It is a total revolving door. I've seen I don't I couldn't even tell you how many different versions of White Snake, but there has not been a bad one that I've seen yet. Just uh, fantastic. In early 1985, David Coverdale was thinking about ending White Snake, the band he formed in 1978 after leaving Deep Purple and putting out two solo albums. Executives at Whitesnake's label Geffen Records convinced him to keep going because they saw great potential in Coverdale working with John Sykes, a guitarist who had joined the band after leaving Thin Lizzy and re-recorded guitar tracks for the U.S. release of Whitesnake's 1984 album Slide It In, which saw some success in America. Coverdale and Sykes traveled to the south of France to begin work on the next record, which saw the material departing from Whitesnake's earlier blues rock sound and moving towards a heavier pop or hair metal sound that was popular with American audiences at the time with corresponding production values. With the new material ready, the band added original member Neil Murray and new member Ainsley Dunbar to fill out the bass and drum positions, and the group relocated to Vancouver to begin tracking, with much of the basic tracks completed by 1986. Coverdale then contracted a serious sinus infection that required surgery and a six-month rehabilitation period, while Sykes believed he was just suffering from nerves and was deliberately putting off tracking his vocals. Coverdale claimed that Sykes was conspiring against him, even going so far as to suggesting that Coverdale be replaced, and the situation turned ugly, resulting in Coverdale firing all the other band members after completing their tracks. The feud between Coverdale and Sykes remains to this day. Now the sole remaining member of the band, Coverdale put together a new lineup of Whitesnake featuring guitarists Adrian Vandenberg and Vivian Campbell, bassist Rudy Sarzo, and drummer Tommy Aldridge, while emphasizing the band's look to coincide with the new album's hair metal sound. When the album was released in March 1987, the cover featured a brand new logo and a medallion against a cracked stone background that the band utilized going forward, and the record became a massive hit, buoyed by the music videos featuring model actress Tawny Katane that garnered a ton of airplay and fit right in with the glam pop metal that was dominating MTV. The album was mostly praised by critics, with a segment of them feeling that Whitesnake's new look and sound was, in reality, the band's selling out, a sentiment shared by the band's old-school fans. Whitesnake embarked on a worldwide tour that, coupled with the album's success, turned the band into a headlining arena act in America. Thereafter, Whitesnake sought share of ups and downs, breakups and reformations, but the band has persevered and remains active to this day. When this album came out, it landed right in my wheelhouse at the time. As I've said many times on the podcast, I was a hair metal fan, and the singles from this hit all the right spots, especially considering I was completely unaware of Whitesnake's history back then. John Sykes is a fucking beast, and this album turned me into a total fan of his. And I also liked the different personal vibe that David Coverdale brought to the table. Steve, you kind of mentioned this. Even when he sang about subjects typical to the hair metal genre, like, you know, sex... There was an elegance to him, a kind of gentlemanly class he projected that made him stand out from the usual raunchy, macho howlers you saw at the time. 
That said, revisiting this album also made me realize that side one, or the first half of the record if you had a CD, is where most of the good shit is. Side two sees a drop in musical quality that, while not god-awful, feels much more like, eh, going through the motions in my opinion. In other words, this is one of those albums that, on the whole, isn't quite as good as I remembered. I give White Snake 87 a 3, and I am a fan of this band, all of its eras, and this record to me represents a fascinating transition and musical transformation. Now we'd like to thank the great Steve Wright from the Potter Than Hell podcast for coming back on R4 to talk a little White Snake with us. Go ahead and plug your show and anything else you got going on. Okay, thanks again, once again, for having me here, Aaron and Mike. Uh, always great talking to you guys. Uh, we had a good power trio thing going here tonight. <laughs> and, um, yeah, our, our show is the Potter Than Hell podcast. If you're listening to Aaron and Mike here, uh, I'm sure you you may have heard me on the episode before. And if you're listening to us right now, you could listen to the Potter Than Hell podcast on any of the platforms pretty much that you can uh, get Aaron and Mike and the gang on. And um, and I'm I'm looking forward to uh, to the double bill of you and Sonny and uh, me and Lou. <laughs> <laughs> Battle for the ages. Absolutely. All ref. <laughs> And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast on all the podcasting platforms wherever you listen to them. If you like what you hear, please subscribe or follow the podcast and leave us a review. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com or also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. If you feel the podcast has value and would like to make a contribution to support it, please head over to Patreon and the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews page and sign up on one of the monthly tiers. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for the R4 Podcast, I'm Aaron. And I'm Mike. See ya. Let me see your cigarette lighters. Here's a song for ya. us to the final track, Don't Turn Away, written by Ga- David David Goverdale. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> Fuck. And that brings us to the final track, Don't Turn Away, written by David... What the fuck? <laughs> Dude, what are you doing? Jesus Christ! Where, where David, are you trying to... David! Are you, are you trying to work the word gay in there? Gay. <laughs> <laughs> this is usually how I start the episode. <laughs> what are you doing, David? No. I would never accuse David Coverdale of being gay. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe all I heard was the last track. I never heard him do anything else. <laughs> oh, shit. All right, take three. All right, here we go. Mm-hmm.